clever introduction, Albert. Oh, were we starting? I thought you were still clearing. <laughs> you still need to blow your nose. No, no, no. But I thought we were still clearing uh, uh, dead air for uh, editing purposes. So is this the official start? Uh, it can be. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Between the Gutters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying now? Welcome to Between the Gutters podcast. <laughs> I'm Albert Lamb. I am Drew Tan. And together we form Voltron. Yes. <laughs> Defender <laughs> of the universe. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> thanks for tuning in to our podcast. We are Between the Gutters. We talk about the stories within the panels. Comics, comic books, sequential art, sequential storytelling. Words, with word bubbles, pictures. Yes. Uh. All of that good stuff <laughs> is what we bask in. Today, um, we are continuing our countdown of the top 25 Marvel comics of all time. That's right, folks. We are down to number five, baby. Yep. We have finally hit the top five. Yeah. Oh, something I did want to mention that... Uh, so. Uh, moving forward for this podcast or for for this uh, series, we're just going to do single... We're going to dedicate time to each one of these individually. In the past, mm-hmm. we did two at a time. So, you know, we're this is these are the comics that deserve our love and we want to dedicate all of our time and attention to these. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So, Albert... What is the number five greatest Marvel comic of all time, according to the experts? <laughs> what do the experts say is the fifth greatest Marvel comic according, of all time? According to the Buddhist monks that we have on a, on a hillside in Tibet, uh, on the highest mountaintops who we go to, who we have traversed over the vastest oceans and the highest mountains to seek the knowledge uh, according to them, uh, I am proud to say that it is a book that is near and dear to my heart. It is Iron Man Extremis by Warren Ellis and art by Adi Gravnov. So if you, uh, if you know me and Drew, then you know that there are probably a handful of writers that we, uh, we throw out there quite a bit, mm-hmm. a lot even, yeah. and Warren Ellis is one of them. He is he is the man. Yup. He is a writer whose work I adore and I follow him very closely. I try to read all of his works um, in any medium, whether it's uh, comics or prose. He's written a couple of novels and he's novellas. Even, yeah. He's, he's got shows on Netflix. Yeah, he if you've heard of uh, the Castlevania animated series on Netflix. Yeah. He's actually the producer and writer of that show. I highly recommend it. Yep. He's just a fantastic writer and very talented guy. Yeah. All around. Yeah. The the guy's a triple threat. Mhm. He sings, he dances. <laughs> <laughs> he acts. <laughs> yeah, and he writes comics. And he writes he's a quadruple quadru quadruple. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Iron Man Extremist by Warren Ellis. Do you have any of the uh, background details, Drew? 
Um, it came out in what, 2000, I want to say 2004. Uh, it was one of the first Iron Man comics that came out in the wake of Avengers Disassembled. Basically, uh, a relaunching of the uh, entire series, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I forgot to look up the exact date it was released, but I'm pretty sure it was around 2004. Um, the it says to January 2005. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, so it must have come out very late 2004. Yeah. It's a six-issue storyline. Yeah. There were a couple of delays towards the end of the of the story, but you know what? I'm totally okay with it because if the delays were uh, a result of the artist needing to take some time it's totally worth it because Adi Granov is one of the best Iron Man artists of all time yeah yeah it's, a, it's hard to imagine this comic with a fill-in artist you know like yeah if, if some other Trump had drawn issue five out of six uh would this mean our would this even make our top five um you know what? I'd still want to say that it would, if only because the story is so so compelling and mm-hmm. it's so great. But you know, that's a different universe. So I, yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I'm like, that's like Captain America at the end of Endgame. He <laughs> he, it's it's a different set of circumstances entirely, and I have no idea what happened. So yeah. it's hard for me to say, man. Yeah. Delia, should we go into what the story is actually about? Yeah. Let's uh, describe the story. So the story takes Iron Man in period of time. Uh, right, I guess it's it. It you can take it as an evergreen story if you if you are, however, a stickler for continuity. Yeah, I think we would say it, it takes place sometime uh, in between the first and the second arc of New Avengers. Yeah, let me um, add to that by saying that uh, just. For those of you who might not be super familiar with comics, this is kind of... I'm loath to say that it's a relaunch, but because it's not really a relaunch, but it's kind of... I guess it's a retelling, or it touches it's on... A, it's a revamp. It's a revamp. There we go. Yeah. That's the best way to put it, because it's still its own original story, but it touches on elements of Tony Stark slash Iron Man's origin while still adding to it. Mm-hmm. And modernizing it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's the short descriptor for what it is. Yeah. It's about Iron Man essentially um, rediscovering, partly for himself and not partly for the benefit of the reader, kind of rediscovering himself and, and getting in tune with what he really stands for, what he means, what he represents to the Marvel Universe. It's a story about... Tony Stark coming face to face with one of his nightmares, which is technology that he created being used. Well, he didn't create it, but it's it's technology basically running amok and destroying the future. Yeah. Whereas his whole thing, especially as introduced in this story, is technology being created to benefit the future, to form and shape the future in a positive way. So what extremist is, is it's, I'm just going to turn to the text here and <laughs> read a description of it. So extremist is a super soldier solution. 
It is a bioelectronics package fitted into a few billion graphic nanotubes and suspended in carrier fluid. A magic bullet, like the original Super Soldier Serum, all in a single injection. It hacks the body's repair center, the part of the brain that keeps a complete blueprint of the human body. When we're injured, we refer to that area of the brain in order to heal properly. Extremis rewrites the repair center. In the first stage, the entire body essentially becomes an open wound. The normal human blueprint is being replaced with an extremist blueprint. The brain is being told that the body is wrong. Extremist protocol dictates that the subject be put on life support and intravenously fed nutrients at this point. For the next two or three days, the subject remains unconscious within a cocoon of scabs. Basically, the idea behind the creation of the extremist serum was so that whoever was given this, they could have a three-man strike force that could retake an entire city on their own. Mm. You know, that's the sort of power that it's meant to give its super soldiers. So yeah. extremist is, is this super soldier serum created by one of Tony Stark's uh, old old friends from the... I guess bioengineering industry. Yeah, it it falls into the wrong hands. Basically, a domestic terrorist. Yeah, and it's up to Iron Man to put a stop to him. Yeah, um, yeah. In short, that's what the story is. Uh, it starts out with shady characters uh, in an abandoned building, and uh, one of them injects themselves with this unknown substance, which is later revealed to be the extremist package, mm-hmm. and. Um, as the story progresses, what we discover is that the individual who, at the beginning of the story, uh, injected themselves with this extremist is actually an extremist. Yeah. He's, he's a far-right extremist who doesn't like what the country's become, and he intends to use this, um, this bit of medical technology to advance his body so that he can carry out I get. I, I wouldn't. I guess you could call it an act of terrorism, but he just wants to. He's kind of too dumb to really be able to articulate any sort of coherent ideal that he actually wants to fight for. Yeah, I mean, it's it's as simple as I don't like the way things are, and I'm gonna kill as many people, and I'm gonna kill uh, as many people in as high up uh, as I can in order to either achieve that goal or to get that message out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's a pretty straightforward story in that sense, but it by no means is a simple story. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot going on here in terms of um, Tony Stark's development as a character, and uh, it touches on a lot of the themes that you mentioned uh, briefly earlier on about how uh, technology can be used as this force for evil as much as it can be used for a force for good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so does that pretty much sum up? Are, are there any other story elements that you want to add to or would you rather save those for mm-hmm. as we I guess the, the one more story element that I would want to mention is that this story also happens to update Iron Man's origin for the modern age. Yeah. Because when Iron Man was originally created back in the 60s, he was, uh, his creation was tied into the Vietnam War. Yeah. 
where he he was a weapons Tony Stark was a weapons manufacturer who developed I guess landmines and or just munitions that were used in war torn uh, Vietnam areas. Yeah, and I guess he somehow. I mean, everybody's probably watched the movie, so it's the yeah. same idea, except it takes place in Vietnam instead of the Middle East. Yeah, so, um, so that was a pretty big addition or revamp of Tony Stark's origin. Like, it's a modernization of it. Right, because with comics, there's always that I- that idea of the sliding scale. Yeah. Sl- or the sliding timeline, rather. Yeah. Um, so... When this comic came out, it was the early 2000s. Is it really realistic to have Tony Stark being that a- that age where he was old enough to be involved in Vietnam? But yeah. He's nowadays, at the time the comic was written, it was 2004. Yeah. And he's still Iron Man because he'd have to be pretty old at that point, right? Yeah. But they still draw him like he's a man in his prime. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess... You could have someone punch the walls of reality and reshape, <laughs> <laughs> reshape it so that, um, you know, everything's so that five years goes missing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That sounds like something DC could do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anyway, when Warren Ellis and Adi Granov took on Iron Man, they decided to use it as an opportunity to also update his origin. So. Instead of being uh, captured in Vietnam, it's the Middle East. Yeah, he gets captured in the Middle East, so it makes more sense. So he's not as old um, as a person. Yeah, and I mean, with things going the way they are, I guess it it's gonna fit for a while. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. Uh. (laughs) Wow, that's heavy. (laughs) We're gonna need a second. Okay, so should we move on to the craft of it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, there, I I feel like there's so much to say, and uh, it's hard for me to pin down where to start, but I'll, I'll try my best. Um, well, okay, I'm going to, first of all, talk about Warren Ellis, because just as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of love for him. Um, one thing that I did notice is uh warren ellis in recent years he's he's well known best known probably for what he did with the authority uh in the early 2000s Mm -hmm. uh he wrote this comic 90s early 2000s late 90s early 2000s he wrote this comic book called the authority in which he kind of set the benchmark for a lot of superheroes moving forward Mm -hmm. uh, superhero stories moving forward and um I'm pretty sure that he's influenced a lot of writers and just that entire era of comics. Mm -hmm. Uh, After The Authority, we saw a lot of things that either tried to take, make, take variations on that uh, idea Mm -hmm. or it tried to um, copy it. Uh, this the, the the ideas that he he came up with in yeah. the authority. The authority was a comic published by Wildstorm, which was at the time an imprint of DC Comics. Yeah, and that is as much a watershed moment for superheroic fiction. Yeah, along the likes of something like Watchmen or Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, it's just 
a moment in comics that basically changed everything. Yeah, like, uh, I don't, again, so for the average person who doesn't necessarily know too much about comics, it's just, he, he put out a scale on comics that had never, hadn't really been seen up to that point where he, he just kind of made it very cinematic on some level and just yeah. made it a very large scale sort of story. Um, yeah. So did, did you have anything to add to that or? I think what his work on the authority also showed was his, he, he was a smart writer and he didn't write down to his audience. He, he would actually trust the audience to understand yeah. what he was communicating. He and Brian Hitch, uh, together, doing the authority um it on the surface it it seems like a very simple story superhero story yeah but the narrative techniques and the storytelling techniques uh visually um those are techniques that ended up becoming very widespread and popular throughout mainstream comics yeah i'm, I'm speaking specifically of the idea of decompressed storytelling yeah. which we see in manga a lot but hadn't really been used too often in superhero comics. Yeah. Well, and then like just the whole of... thing you mentioned about widescreen action yeah. that Brian Hitch established. You know, stuff like that is stuff that we still... Like, when you look at a comic, a superhero comic from today and compare it to a superhero comic from the 90s or the 80s, you can clearly see there's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What was I going to say? I forget, but... Um, it'll come back to you. It'll come back to me, and then I'll probably interrupt you while you're in the middle. <laughs> you think it'll help you remember it if I start rubbing your knee? I think that'll probably not help. It'll definitely not help. Like, I could rub both of them. No. I have two hands. I, I don't want like, that to happen. Would that help you remember I better? I absolutely don't want that to happen. I could just put my hands on you. Yeah, I, no, please don't. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I wanted to introduce Warren Ellis to for just for a little bit of context um so that i could say that so ever since then um warren ellis hasn't really been the kind of writer to get extensive runs on a lot of things so it, it's and i don't think it's because they're not offering it to him i think it's really like once you His kind choice. of yeah once you get a once you sort of make your name for yourself on the level that he has um he has the luxury of picking and choosing his mm -hmm. projects and kind of setting the uh, setting the um, uh, I don't want to say agenda, but setting the uh, he can do the jobs that he wants to do. Yeah, and at the pace that he wants to do it at, mm -hmm. essentially. So, uh, so the thing about Invincible Iron Man that's so great, or uh, Iron Man Extremist that's so great is. It's six issues, and that's all it is. Mm -hmm. And he tells the story that he wants to tell, and yeah, it's just it's it's the perfect jumping on point for anyone who's never read an Iron Man story, mm -hmm. you know. So I think that it's it's the perfect amount of issues as opposed to going up to a kid and saying, "This guy wrote fifty or a hundred issues of this thing," like here you go, <laughs> then just dumping a bunch of comics on him and walking away. Like, Actually, if I were a kid, I would love that. <laughs> that I'm an adult and I would probably love that. <laughs> that's true, that's true. Unless it's something that I don't want. 
Terret. <laughs> here's a full run of Terret, Albert. Uh. Here's, here's, here's uh, the first 150 issues of Spawn for you. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, so when you call Iron Man extremist an evergreen story, I, I do think that it's a testament to his ability to to understand how to tell such a self-contained story that says everything that he needs to say and wants to say about Iron Man in yeah. just six issues. I, I think that's a remarkable skill and a remarkable talent. He captures the essence and the core elements of the character and distills them into one singular, cohesive narrative statement yeah. that you can consume without having to feel like you're reading a, a super long, dragged-out novel. It's It's... Yeah, short enough that you can read it in one sitting, uh-huh. but it's deep enough that you can reread it constantly. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like he he could have not made this an origin story, and it it's not really an origin story, but he did go back to it, and like you said, he took the opportunity and took it as a chance to modernize uh, Tony Stark, mm-hmm. and so that which normally in under in somebody else's hands would be like a whole story in and of itself. He does with a couple of pages here and there, and it tells you everything that you need to know about Iron Man right there. Yeah. You know, and it's just such a simple, subtle thing, but it's, and this is going to touch on impact, but you know, it, it changed Iron Man moving forward Mm -hmm. and set the tone for Iron Man moving forward, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing about Warren Ellis that, uh, I have to credit him as just, you know, as a testament to his, uh, amazing talent as a writer is he's always been a science fiction guy and he is, uh, he's just been remarkable at taking kind of standard scientific tropes and just kind of turning them on their head and just giving you something either a new take on it or just something new entirely, you know, Mm -hmm. and just introducing ideas that you've just never heard of, you know? Yeah. Um, in a previous podcast, we were talking about the ultimate Galactus trilogy. Yeah. And you were talking, you mentioned, uh, this thing in the, in the story that he mentions, it's a phenomena called the Tunguska event. Yeah. I mean, this is a real thing that happened, but for him to take it and just, uh, inject crazy elements of science fiction into it and to modernize it and make it just insanely compelling, you know, and believable too at that. Like there are a lot of people who do science fiction where if you, you kind of have to, I mean, there's always a suspension of belief. Sure. But disbelief or disbelief. Exactly. Um, but you know, with him, he, he fills it out with enough detail and believability that I'm like, there are times where I'll finish it and I'll be like, wait a minute, is that really something that people are researching? Is that something yeah. that someone exactly. is like working on? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, cause, um, that, that, uh, description that you gave earlier in extremists, right. Mm-hmm. It's something that for all intents and purposes, he made up for this story, but he, his language in describing it is just so detailed and seamless that, you believe that this is actual scientific um, yeah, work. The fictional aspects have elements that are rooted in real science. So even though 
nothing like this actually exists. The yeah. science behind it, there's, there's, there's a, I guess, um, verisimilitude to it where you can almost you can understand how, in a science fiction or a superhero world, how people could get mm. to that level where they could develop yeah. something like that. Yeah. Uh, there was something. I was. Re- I, I think it's if you read his um his newsletter. He has a weekly newsletter that you can subscribe to via email. Uh-huh. Like he's constantly talking about books he's reading, and also just different things that kind of tickle his fancy. And sometimes he'll mention some sort of scientific thing or some something that he he read or heard from a conference. Yeah. And this guy is just on top of things. You know, yeah. he he. It, I don't even think he does it purely just as research but i think he's just genuinely interested in the future and how things work and engineering and building things that don't exist yet and just imagining what the future is like and that's what makes him a really great science fiction writer right and that's exactly what i was going to say was it's it's a testament again to just like how dedicated he is to his research but it's it's such a dedication where that it's not even it's it transcends research it's not even research right yeah because he genuinely and sincerely enjoys it yeah so and because of that he's able to communicate it to us the reader as something that we would understand Mm -hmm. and in a way that still flowery enough and poetic enough and uh where it's it still sounds like technical enough Mm -hmm. that it be legitimate you know, yeah. it'd, it'd be believable. So, yeah, he's he's a excellent um, researcher and writer. Yeah, the other thing that defines his his abilities as a writer is his penchant for witty, snappy dialogue. Yeah, just dialogue that there's a sense of humor behind it. Maybe the characters have an exchange that kind of sounds yeah sarcastic but it's it's just really entertaining um it's hard to think of you know other superlative adjectives other than he's he, he good he good I, writer me I like, like him me like <laughs> <laughs> yeah he um Warren Ellis is some people might say he's um some people would say that he writes a very specific kind of character a lot, which mm-hmm. is the you know the bastard with a heart of gold. Yeah. But I don't ever feel like they're all the same character, you know. Like exactly. They're they may they might on the surface be that, but they're for the most part they're all. It's kind of what makes them human, you mm-hmm. know. It's they're they're salty and they're kind of sour, but they're superheroes for a reason. Yeah. You know, and yeah, they've got he's able to capture kind of the sourness and the sweetness of a person in their wit and their dialogue, yeah, which is really great. So, um, he's great at conveying personality through dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect way to put it. Yeah. I think one of the things that also defines his writing is sometimes I think, uh, I think there are critics or maybe, more shallow readers who would look at his his stories and point out that his characters tend to be cynical. Yeah. But if you read his work closely, 
as I have and actually read a lot of his stories, I think you'll find that he may write characters that come across as cynical on the surface, but deep down they actually care. So it's, I feel like he's really good at writing stories. And I don't know if this is intentional or not, or if it's just a characteristic of his writing that I've noticed as I've read so many of his works. But he, he's really good at writing stories where the surface of the story, it seems like very cynical, but underneath it, there's plenty of hope and optimism. Yeah. Even, even something like Transmetropolitan, which is one of his, I don't know, maybe you could say that's his magnum opus or his defining work. Like The main character in that comic, Spider Jerusalem, is this reporter in this sort of science fiction dystopian future. Uh, and he's, he's this journalist who tries to uncover the truth and ends up getting embroiled in all these things that would just make us mad. Yeah. Uh, and he comes off as that prototypical uh, cynical character. But when you read the whole story and really think about what drives the character of Spider Jerusalem, there is an innate He wants to do optimism, good. Optimism, yeah, yeah, or a sense of hope. I don't know if... I'm pretty sure that he would never admit that. Yeah. But, but <laughs> he, you, he strikes me as the kind of guy who would. Yeah, but, but when you when you read the story, yeah. there is, there's an underlying theme of, of optimism and hope. And I think it's a theme that um, you just see pop up frequently throughout Warren yeah. Ellis' works. Like, I, I, I like to compare his works um, thematically with someone like a Mark Miller. Because Mark Miller, a lot of his works, they tend to be stories about basically these idealistic characters, but underneath, they're just rotten. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's like the opposite. Yeah. Where if, you're, if you're not really paying attention to a Mark Miller comic, you yeah. think, oh yeah, these guys are, are heroes um, because they're wearing the costumes or whatever. Yeah. But deep down, they're just rotten yeah. or selfish. Or, there's something cynical, you know? There's yeah. something cynical about them. Whereas the opposite is true with Warren Ellis's characters. They, On the surface, they may appear cynical, but deep down, they have that heart of gold. And there is an underlying theme yeah. of, of hope in his work overall. Yeah. And I don't think Tony Stark is any different here. Um, mm-hmm. Like, as you mentioned earlier, the, the broader theme of it is... Um, his night it's his nightmare that technology can be used uh to do harm mm-hmm. and it makes sense that tony stark of all people would be this guy who who views technology as you know so on the surface he's this drunken playboy and you would think that he doesn't really care for much in the world yeah. but uh deep down inside he he views technology more than anyone else because you know iron man is what he uses to save the world mm-hmm. so the idea that someone would pervert technology to 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 do wrong to do harm like it wounds him yeah you know yeah yeah oh do you have anything to say about the art of adi gravnov yeah He's a fantastic artist. This is the art that defined Iron Man for this generation, basically. I mean, I think we'll be talking more about Adi Granov's art as we dive more into the impact mm. of extremists as a as a work. 
But just speaking in terms of the craft of the art in this comic, he has a very distinctive style. Nowadays, he, he doesn't really do a lot of interiors because I think he's it just takes too long and yeah. he's busy doing a lot of other work, yeah. uh, other art. Um, so it's just a really special treat to see him do a complete doing, story. Yeah, six yeah. straight issues. I was reading some some interviews with him uh, in those director cut editions of the of the single issues. Yeah, and he was saying how in the first issue and and even part of the half f- half of the first or the f- entire first issue and part of the second issue, he was doing everything digitally. Right. And when you look at his work, it, it does look like digital art, right? Yeah. Um, but it turns out that. After the second part of... The, while he was working through the second issue, he decided he was going to um, go back to paper and pencil. So if you look at the rest of the issues, um, I know you're, you're flipping through them right now, mm. but he's, he switches up his style. It's, it's kind of subtle if you're not really looking for it, but, but you can tell that he starts using... As he starts using um, pencil and graphite... And paper, there's... You can tell, actually. Oh, yeah. I know what you're saying now that the, you the, mentioned the, the, the texture. The li- Yeah, and then the yeah. textures are different. The lines aren't quite as fine. Yeah. Because some the early issues, some of the it's lines are extremely clean. fine. Yeah, yeah, it was really clean. And he, he said he was getting bored of doing that style, and, and he thought some of the scenes, the people looked like they were maybe a little too plasticky. Mm. So he wanted to try something different i guess yeah and it, it still works out um i believe that the inking and the coloring um was all done digitally mm. so it still has that unified look it looks yeah it looks like a really well-painted comic yeah but the other thing other than just the style of his his art i think he's a really good storyteller too because he is able to convey um a lot of shades of meaning and depth behind his characters. They, his characters are, are good actors. Yeah. Like f- from the facial expressions, um, just the way that their bodies, um, you know, their like body language and gesture. That's that's always a very important thing in storytelling. And Espe- yeah, especially think, in comics. Yeah, yeah. In superhero comics, it's probably one of the more uh, difficult things because. Most people focus on being able to draw action and uh, excitement. Yeah. You know, the scenes where people are fighting each other, explosions. There's a lot of artists that can do stuff like that. But I think we always talk about it on, on our podcast whenever we discuss artwork for the best comics that Marvel's ever done. One thing that we see in common, regardless of what style that the artists use, is they're... These artists are always excellent at communicating emotion, com- yeah. communicating story just yeah. through the visual part of the storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, there are like long portions and chunks of this of uh, extremists where it's just people sitting and talking to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, like his ability to communicate the realism of it through body language and facial expression, like. That's the stuff that adds the element of realness and believability to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, 
I guess most people don't really realize how hard it is to... They just kind of assume, oh, I'm just going to show this guy sitting here, this guy listening, this guy... And it's just yeah. this back and forth. But it takes a lot of work to do that and to maintain someone's interest. Yeah, exactly. You know? There, It doesn't, doesn't mean that a scene of a conversation has to be dynamic. Yeah. But it's it has to be engaging. Yeah. You can't just draw like the same you can't draw like one panel or one giant splash of two people in a room and then just fill in all these word balloons for the entire conversation yeah. right like that i mean I, I've, I've seen that before yeah. it, it's it it rarely makes it engaging you know like as a reader you can read the dialogue and understand oh these people are talking yeah, but yeah, it, yeah. it kind of feels like it's just a bunch <clears throat> of words being dumped on you yeah whereas with the script like warren ellis wrote you have people like there's a scene where Tony Stark and Maya Hansen. Maya Hansen is the woman who created the extremist. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it a virus, but the extremist serum. Yeah. It got stolen, and she needs him to. She needs Iron Man to help get it back or stop the guy who stole it. Yeah. So the two of them, um, he's not in his armor. He's Tony Stark. He and Maya Hansen end up going to visit one of their other friends when when they learn uh, what happened with the stolen extremist sample. But there's a whole scene of the, th- of the two of them and their friend. So it's the three of them basically sitting in a room, having a conversation, kind of catching up on what's been going on in their lives because they're old friends. And there's just something about the way that Adi Granov draws that scene where it's just compelling. Uh, it's engaging. It, it kind of draws you into the room uh, with them because it doesn't feel like you're just looking at um, people that you don't care about sitting around talking, but you can see from how he draws them that you know they're they've got banter. They have they go back a long way. Yeah, like there's a scene where Tony Stark takes a, a sip of juice that this guy gave him because everybody else is drinking alcohol, but Tony Stark, being an alcoholic, stays away from it. Yeah, so he's drinking juice, and then the other guy's talking, and you see Tony Stark make a face. And you just know that he hates this juice. <laughs> it tastes bad, you know? And yeah. Like, it, it's just something that's so minor and subtle and yeah. stark. Like, it doesn't really get directly addressed immediately yeah. in the in the dialogue or anything. But you just know that f- from reading it, looking at the picture, that's what, what's he, that's what he's feeling. It's the type of subtlety that we take for granted. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Because just think about it. If, if you're having a conversation with someone and they're talking and you take a sip of your drink and you don't really like it, you make a little face. Yeah. But you, it's not necessarily something where you interrupt the guy and be like, why did you give me this? This, yeah, yeah, this yeah. drink is awful or whatever. You know, yeah. you just kind of continue on. Yeah. I, I do. I didn't really uh, check the, the, the script notes on it, but I wonder if that was something that Ellis wrote in or if that was just, you know, I think that of, was in the script. I, okay. I reread, I read the script. Like okay. s- these director cuts, director's cut editions yeah. have s- full scripts and Ellis did make a note that he makes he d- a face. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's just a testament to their synergy. Yeah. Like they're like how good they are together, you know? Yeah. Um, Ellis might've written it down and had the idea, but, Gravnov captures it. Gravnov brought it to life. Yeah. Because I think there are other artists who are not as good at stuff like that, where yeah. if they would 
draw a scene where uh, draw that exact scene yeah. and Iron Man Tony Stark makes a face it would probably probably be so over the top yeah where I was thinking of like Liefeld and it's just him gritting his teeth and like just yeah furious like Arr! yeah it, it's not a very... and then all these lines in his face like Arr! exactly that, that's not a very realistic yeah. depiction of human emotion yeah the other thing about Granov's art that really stands out besides how cool the style is is his action sequences are excellent too yeah the fights between iron man and malin malin is the guy who takes he's the extremist extremist dose and becomes this super soldier kind of dude yeah with powers causing mass destruction uh when he and iron man fight you You really feel like iron man's getting messed up (laughs) yeah you really get to feel it yeah and the action is well choreographed. Yeah. You're never confused at the angle or anything. Like, the focal points are always the appropriate focal point for that specific yeah. image, for and, that moment. Yeah. And I don't ever feel like... There... Yeah, I know. I just saw that. <laughs> but there are moments where... It, it doesn't feel like there are a lot of panels. So mm-hmm. everything is used deliberately and sparingly and to maximum effect yeah you know so that's that's the impression that i get when i'm watching a fight scene that he does you know it's Mm -hmm. just it might just be you know three or four five panels something like that but it's just exactly what he needs it to be in order to communicate the the movement of where where you're being hit how you're moving to respond to it and where you need to be where you would reasonably be when your body's reacting to yeah. getting hit. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, like, for example, there's a scene at the beginning of the last issue when Iron Man gets upgraded. Basically, what happens in the story is Iron Man fights Malin, gets his butt kicked, and he gets beaten so bad, he's got internal injuries and maybe even close to death. Yeah. He ends up taking extremists himself. Yeah. And he gets an upgrade so that he can have faster response time with his Iron Man armor. Yeah. So he gets an upgrade, and then he goes back, tracks Malin down. Uh, then, early in the sixth issue, when he finds Malin, there's just this scene of him flying in the sky. He sees Malin walking on the streets, and Iron Man, from, from the air, shoots down a repulsor blast. <laughs> and the way that Adi Granov draws that impact is incredible, because... The, the whole science fiction concept behind the repulsor ray is that the repulsor shoots a beam that doesn't have uh, any pushback for the user, right? So it's, it's like a, a frictionless force blast. So yeah. essentially you're, you're pushing down on something, but nothing is pushing back up on you. Yeah. And when he shoots Malin in that picture, you can see... Like the f- the impact. intensity of the force, he's yeah. Malin is just getting pressed down to the ground so hard. Yeah. Everything around him, like the edge of that car, yeah, 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 street, yeah. everything else is getting pushed down too. Yeah, and it, it, it's, it's just, just getting pancaked. Yeah, he's <laughs> completely getting pancaked, and it, it's it's a powerful impact. And the way that this page is drawn, there's a, it's it's just so detailed with that. The way this wall is, all you can see all the bricks and and the tones and the the colors. Yeah, of the beam. It's it's a really well-drawn page, and that's what I think of when I think of his art. Yeah. It's something that has a lot of force and impact. The design element of it is really high. You get... It, it's it's a splash page, 
but you have two small inset panels. One panel at the upper left-hand corner has a picture of Iron Man warming up his... It's just a close-up of his hand. open hand about yeah. to shoot the beam down. Then the splash page is the beam pancaking this dude from the <laughs> sky. And then on the bottom left corner, there's another inset panel where Iron Man takes his other hand, makes a fist, and shoots these micro munitions at the guy he just knocked down. Yeah. And you just... Like, the way that it's framed, like, you see the full impact of the force. It just yeah. gives you the impression that a massive beam is hitting this guy before he can even react. Yeah. Iron Man's already shooting more stuff at him. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's super dynamic. Like, and again, like you said, all it takes is these couple of panels where you don't even see Iron Man. You just see his hands. Yeah. And it communicates so much just by watching that. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's exceptional just storytelling technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say about the originality of this work? Uh, I think that in terms of an Iron Man story for something as specific as what Warren Ellis was trying to do, I thought it was really original. Like mm-hmm. the, sci- the science fiction elements. Like it's it's another example of tweaking something so simple but making such significant changes to it yeah. like uh we've discussed it earlier with like art but this is for this it was the storytelling you know for him to just add like yeah. iron man in it of himself is a science fiction character and uh, science fiction you would as you would understand it would play like such this really heavy role in just his world yeah and for Warren Ellis to take it and just go, well, I'm just going to play it real, you know, and yeah. just really kind of up the sci-fi aspects of it without making it, you know, um, silly or whatever, or just overly uh, burdened with, yeah, um, you know, over-the-top sort of science fiction. It, it adds a lot to just... Yeah, it just adds a lot to the quality of the Iron Man story that he ends up ultimately telling, you know, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Um, I, I do think that, again, he takes these science fiction elements that we're not accustomed to, like the idea of this extremist. Like, anybody else would say, oh, it's a super soldier serum. But he takes it and he adds several layers to it yeah. and to make it, again, more believable, more understandable and just i don't know how else to describe it but more sciencey sounding yeah <laughs> yeah 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 it is and I, th- I think the whole uh theme of science is one of those themes that is prevalent throughout this comic uh there's a couple times at least one or two times when tony stark or somebody says somebody else m- maybe says that tony stark is a test pilot for the future. Yeah. Like, that's sort of his, uh, I guess, his essence, right? Yeah. He's a, if you really boil him down to his most uh, base components, you could call him the test pilot for the future. Yeah. That's what he does. That's what Iron Man represents. And because of this comic, the term futurist became heavily associated yeah. with Iron Man. Yeah. Like, a lot of the comics that came out after point. this... 
constantly referred to Iron Man as a futurist, and I don't think all the writers necessarily um, always completely did full justice to that idea, but I think they understood that that was what he was supposed to represent. Yeah. I'm thinking of characters, or not characters, writers like Bendis or Matt Fraction. Yeah. Um, people who just used, who wrote Iron Man comics whether it was in the avengers or yeah um or mark miller and civil war yeah you know th- those are the stories where you would see uh writers pointing out or making a call out to how iron man is a futurist uh, which i guess means he's dep- a visionary he's a visionary he's, he sees yeah. the future and he wants to shape it the way that he wants to see it yeah yeah uh, yeah you're you're absolutely right like up to this point he was just you know, an inventor. Yeah, which, up to this point, he was an inventor and a superhero who yeah. just went around having adventures, fighting bad guys, beating yeah. up other people who had armor, or um, teaming up with the Avengers for yeah, rescue yeah, yeah. missions or but the things thing of about that a, nature. But the thing about a futurist is, I think, I think visionary is kind of the right word for it because there's something in that term that implies that your entire job is just to come up with a vision for the future. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So like, th- which is a thing in and of itself. Exactly. And I think it's really interesting how Warren Ellis kind of underlines that theme uh, in the story by calling out um, <clears throat> a contrast to Tony Stark's history, his past as uh, basically a munitions ma- or a weapons manufacturer. Yeah. <coughs> There's this <clears throat> Excuse me. There's this memorable scene in the first issue where Tony Stark has an interview with this documentarian. Yeah. Or is that the right word? Or documentary maker? Documentary. Uh, a film. A uh, film director. A film director who's he's a he's a guy making this who who makes these series of documentaries. Yeah. I guess. And I, I don't know if there's really any. I can't. I don't know documentaries well enough to to know, like what a real world comparison would be like to this guy. Uh, I mean, he, like the easiest one would be like Michael Moore or something. Yeah. So, so someone like Michael Moore. Yeah. Maybe not quite as uh, what abrasive vocal or, or yeah. vocal. Yeah. But they have this interaction where this this documentary guy is making this film called. Ghosts of the 20th Century. Yeah. And they have this interview. He's asking Tony Stark about his company. And you can see, if you read the the dialogue, he keeps asking these questions. And every time Tony answers the question, he kind of runs over him and asks another question. And you can easily see that the point of his questioning is to show that Tony Stark is a warmonger, profiteer, who who doesn't care about people. Yeah. And every time... Uh, Tony tries to expound on an answer. He just gets cut off with another question. So you you, you just see like there's this tension, but Tony um, he just he's being cordial, you know. So he answers the questions. Yeah. Then he he goes. The documentary guy goes on and and says, "Hey, uh, you know, take a look at some of the the, the weapons that your company has produced. Uh, these like these landmines, children in Afghanistan." find them and blow themselves it up. It maims them. Yeah, it maims yeah. them. Uh, and Tony, 
at one point tries to explain that the work that he's doing is supposed to improve the future, benefit people. Yeah. There's there's medical uh basically that his work in the past It's evolved since then. His yeah, his work in the past to develop weapons was basically just a means for his company to earn money because yeah. these government contracts would be able to pay more and he could then use that money to develop uh, technology that would be more benevolent in its yeah. nature yeah. which is true of a lot of different technology in world in the world because a lot of a lot of stuff starts out as with military applications yeah, exactly. and, then, and then do you know how many people Velcro has killed? how many? <laughs> Millions. <laughs> Dang, dude. It makes you think. <laughs> it really makes you think, man. <laughs> but, yeah, there, there's there's a scene at the very end of their conversation, and I just want to read it because it's uh, an excerpt that really uh, st- strikes me as something that uh, kind of embodies... Warren Ellis's and Adi Granov's take on Iron Man. So, Iron Man, or Tony Stark says, I didn't think to myself, no, I didn't first think to myself that taking microchips down to the nanometer limit would be good for bombs, and the money from seed pod was driven into medical biometric implants, cardiac replacement medicine, and internal analgesic pumps. Am I an arms dealer? No. Did I start out as a weapons designer? Yes. Do I intend to die as one? No. And then the documentary guy says, Do they? Th- do you think they have your pain-killing drug pumps in Iraq? Do you think an Afghan kid with his arms blown off by a landmine is remotely impressed by an Iron Man suit? And then there's a panel, a silent panel, where yeah. Tony Stark just kind of has his hand on his chin, just kind of pondering what that means. And what he what he's gonna say next and then the next panel he kind of just lays his hands with his palms flat on the table and says i never claimed to be perfect i always knew there would be blood on my hands i'm trying i'm trying to improve the world and then the next panel the guy just gets up out of his chair and he says improve the world thanks for your time (laughs) you know it's like just this really condescending exchange that is very believable right and you can just imagine oh if someone made a movie like that and the way they cut it you yeah you would totally see this this a businessman as some sort of warmongering profiteer you know who, who doesn't care and then the guy gets up and and this is what he says he says i'm curious actually if you know my work why did you agree to this interview and tony stark says me first why am i a ghost of the 20th century because that was the title of the documentary. Yeah. And the guy stands up to his full height and very smugly he just says, Because your arms work of the 90s still haunts the poverty and war-stricken countries they were deployed in. And then Tony Stark, very next panel, he doesn't even acknowledge the guy's answer directly. He just says, I wanted to meet you. You've been making your investigative films for what, 20 years now? I wanted to ask... Have you changed anything? You've been uncovering disturbing things all over the world for 20 years now. Have you changed anything? You've worked very hard. Most people have no idea of the kind of work you've done. 
Intellectuals, critics, and activists follow your films closely, but culturally, you're almost invisible. Have you changed anything? And then the guy just looks at him and he says, I don't know. And then the next panel, Tony Stark just sticks out his hand to shake the dude's hand and he says, Me neither. It's been an honor to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> and like, that's just like the perfect way to end that scene. You yeah. know, like this Tony Stark, he's he understands that that um he's he's trying to change the world, but it, or he he knows at least with all the things that he's been doing at least he's been able to change the world you know like that's his goal as a futurist as a yeah. visionary a shaper an engineer he he makes things that affect people and yeah this guy pointed out that he started off by designing weapons but that's for tony stark that's in the past for him he wants to build things that will yeah actually change the world for the better yeah and that's pretty much the crux of what drives him throughout this story yeah cuz he's seeing extremists being used by a terrorist really is a nightmare of his just to see technology run amok and destroy the future yeah um <clears throat> the other thing that i was um thinking about while listening to you was well first of all uh you might be able to confirm this in my mind um but when the original Iron Man, uh, when the original Iron Man story was written, like the one way back in the day, um, from what I remember, I don't think they ever explicitly said he was an arms dealer, right? Like, wasn't wasn't the story just that he was shot down in Vietnam, and then in order to survive, he he and another scientist fashioned this plate of armor to keep him alive, and that's because. That's that's how I always remembered the story. Like there wasn't any real element of him being an arms dealer, and it was just this story about this millionaire playboy who got shot down, and because of the tragedy, or not tragedy, but because of as a means of survival, hmm. he had to fashion this armor and get away, and that was the story as I understood it. So I remember thinking when I read Extremists, though the one element that he added was that what he was doing in Afghanistan was that he was actually selling arms. And this was like another layer of complexity that, and I can't say for sure whether like any other writer had done this before, but I remember seeing it for the first time here in extremists, adding this layer of complexity, which was that Tony Stark was actually an arms dealer Mm -hmm. who had to live with, the reality that he had done these things in the past and no matter what he did he'd have to live with it yeah forever you know so Mm -hmm. to some level like whatever good he does is always going to have it's always going to have that shadow haunting him yeah yeah so yeah i don't remember if you remember his original origin that way um, I don't remember. It's been a really long time since I read. Yeah, I mean that. that it's a really old comic too, and it wouldn't surprise me if that version of the comic was a little simpler. Like, I mean, a lot of those origins tend to have tend to be briefer in terms of um, just telling a more straightforward origin story right. that doesn't have 
that didn't have those layers of complexity added to it. Right, right. Yeah. So, in terms of originality, that, like, if if I can confirm that, I would say that that was something new that he brought to Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Was that, I think that was the first time I had seen Iron Man with the burden of being an arms dealer. And I'm going to touch on the idea of impact for a little bit but that is the version of tony stark that we see that we have seen since then yeah you know even in films and whatever i mean i i think my like again i I, i'm like you i can't confirm because it's been so long since i read his original like that tales of suspense Yeah, yeah yeah um but i i don't think I I think I did have the impression that he was an arms dealer. He was. That's what I. Th- okay. I think I had that impression. Okay. But again, I could just be misremembering things. Um, I'd have to check, look it up, just to to make sure. Okay. Because I, I thought that was something that, or even if it wasn't something that was introduced. Um, not arms dealer, like I guess arms designer. Or yeah. If, even if that wasn't something that was introduced, in tales of suspense back in the sixties, it feels like it was something that was. Uh, hinted at or explored throughout at least the 80s and 90s. That's true. When you had, those armor war stories. Yeah, those yeah. those comics where it was like, oh, his his the weapons that he manufactured um, were being used for evil, ill evil purposes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. So, yeah, that's a that's a good point you bring up. Though I'd have to think about that. Yeah, I'd. To be fair, like I think. My strongest memory of it was based on one of those Marvel cards. So <laughs> I don't know if they actually put... Yeah, he designed whip weapons that maimed and killed children and families <laughs> in Vietnam. I don't know if they included that as the... Did you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a pretty twisted fact to yeah. put on the cards for, yeah. <laughs> for the little kid to read. Yeah. Another thing that this comic did was they they gave Tony Stark powers... Yeah, With, yeah. When he took the extremist dose, um, it changed his body. Yeah, it changed his body. He, it he, made him a living computer. Yeah, he well, he he had access to computers yeah. just through mental linkups and whatnot, and he could control his armor without being in his armor. Yeah. So he, it just gave him. He it made him truly the future man. You know, like he he was Iron Man inside and outside. Yeah, that's a great way to put it yeah yeah so what about in terms of oh did you have anything else you wanted to say about the originality um i think uh that's what i basically had to say and if i do come up with anything i'll i'll be sure to mention it Mm -hmm. but i'm i'm good for now okay so let's uh discuss the impact of the comic yeah, uh, I think that it's, it's hard to deny the impact of the comic, mm-hmm. uh, if only because as people who follow comics, we see everything that has happened since mm-hmm. Extremis and just how it shaped Iron Man moving forward. Like, for years following Extremis, Iron Man still had those powers and he was still dealing with... Um, he was still dealing with the repercussions of extremists in the world, mm-hmm. from what I remember. 
you yeah. know, or uh, so after Warren Ellis, I think Charles Knopf wrote that Iron Man as well, and they they talked about extremists a little bit, and then other writers would take extremists and they were working it into their stories, from what I remember too. Yeah, and it wasn't until Fraction, uh, and like well into Fraction's run, which was like eighty something issues, I think, mm-hmm. was it? It was at least around 70, I think. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't until well into that that you kind of... You own it, so you know yeah. better than me. Well, I don't know the exact issue count, but... Um... I mean, you can't tell me what happens on in issue 38, <laughs> panel 4, on page 7. I think he was using the bathroom. <laughs> he was on the toilet. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, I, like, it was something that stuck with... Uh, Iron Man for a long time after after Warren Ellis wrote it, mm-hmm. you know, and it, even even into the movies, we like I I don't like phrasing it that way because it makes it sound like see it only matters because it was in the movies or that's how you know, but you know it, I'm just saying it as a point of reference, yeah, um, and not to like necessarily cast the movies as more important than the comics, mm-hmm. right? So. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my point being that um, these plot elements were so pervasive in Iron Man that we ended up seeing a version of it in Iron Man 3. Yeah. And we see that Tony Stark... Uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah, Tony Stark, from his inception in... Uh, conception? Inception? in Iron Man 1 that he's this arms dealer and he has to deal with um he has to deal with the repercussions of being this futurist in uh I, I lost my train of thought but anyways um yeah I mean a lot of the elements that we see of Tony Stark as it's applied to film yeah is is I I can honestly say that I, I think that a lot of those elements were lifted from extremists. Yeah. You know, like the, that interpretation of Tony Stark as we see him is more or less the Tony Stark that we see that Warren Ellis wrote. Yeah. I think it is absolutely fair to say that this comic is the single story that defines the modern current interpretation of Iron Man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like when I think of the stuff that was written before him, um, like David Michelinie or whatever, uh, <laughs> like I don't, I don't really see that Iron Man or that Tony Stark in the films. You know, that that isn't to say that they didn't borrow or they didn't use elements from those runs, but um, the 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 strongest voice that I can hear when I'm watching those movies is the, uh, that version of Tony Stark from mm-hmm. extremists. Yeah. It's, it's the man who's, it's the man who has a vision for the future, but again, is burdened by, by the guilt of everything that he's done burdened by the guilt of his past. Yeah. 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 yeah and, and like you were saying earlier, this, this comic, uh, elements of it, were lifted into the first Iron Man movie and it's also served as the primary source material for Iron Man 3. Yeah. So clearly, you know, again, not saying that because it was 
influencing the movies that that's all that matters yeah but the movies did have a pretty big impact yeah I mean it that first Iron Man pretty much defined an entire decade of pop culture yeah which is crazy to think about because I don't think we would have predicted that 12 years ago yeah there like Iron Man was someone who was cool to look at as a character but you know in terms of when they were making things into movies nobody would have thought or nobody was thinking that Iron Man was the guy yeah you know cuz everybody was into Batman Wolverine, Wolverine Spidey yeah so those were the characters that we were seeing and for Marvel to take that gamble and to to see the fruits of it 10 years later where his character just died in Endgame and Dude, people that was a spoiler man <laughs> Dude. You hear that, listeners? <laughs> this is what I think of you. <laughs> yeah, but, um, you know, to have him be such a pivotal player and to a point where I'm pretty sure at this point you can ask anyone, who is Iron Man? What's his, what's his secret identity? And I'm pretty sure... Almost anyone would be able to say, it's Tony Stark. Any kid on the playground will know that, you know, compared to when we were kids. I'm pretty sure most kids didn't know who Iron Man even was, let alone Tony Stark. And I'm pretty sure they didn't know that he was a raging alcoholic. (laughs) Yeah. I'm pretty sure a lot of people today don't know that. (laughs) (laughs) But we also got to talk about Adi Granov's artwork and how it influenced... um, how Iron Man looks moving fo- looked moving forward. Yeah. Because his artwork is the definitive Iron Man art. Yeah. He, again, I mean, I feel like we're going back to the movies, but his Iron Man was the basis of that first movie. Yeah. To the point where they hired him as a consultant. So he actually designed the armors that we saw in the movie he designed even frame the animation frames to show how it it would walk, yeah, look in motion. I'm pretty sure they hired him back for Iron Man Two. I heard that he worked on the Avengers movie. I think I even saw him do concept art for Black Panther. So like this is clearly just a guy that um, he gets a lot of work because he's deserves to get a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean he's just really really good. His his yeah. Iron Man suit. Is streamlined uh, and simple, but it's it looks functional. You know, it's, it's yeah. something that you could believe a future-based or technology-based superhero would wear. Yeah, and it doesn't look stupid or there's nothing on it that looks like it's extraneous. But everything yeah. has some sort of purpose or function. Yeah, even if you don't necessarily know what that function is, but it just gives you the impression that there is a, a it reason. It serves a purpose. Yeah, there's a reason why. <laughs> The suit looks the way it looks. Yeah. And his his artwork, um, yeah, just being being hired to work for the for Marvel Studios and and do all the design work. Like, it was all because they liked how his art looked in this comic. You know, yeah. like John Favreau um, personally got requested him. Adi Granoff. Yeah. They even did a comic together. Remember? Which one? I think it was called uh, Viva Las Vegas. Iron Man, Viva Las Vegas. I do remember that. I never that actually... I, I never read, read it. Because I'm, I'm not even sure if they completed it. It might have been one of those things where it 
half he started the, work on it. They, and... they did like two issues and then they never saw the, the end of it. I, yeah. I'm, I'm really not sure. I'd have to look into that. Yeah. But yeah, like Favreau had a uh, deep respect for his, his, his work. Style. Yeah. Cause of this comic, um, got him on board to work on the movies. And ever since then, his art has helped define the Marvel cinematic universe. Yeah. Which is not a small thing to sneeze at. It's not. Yeah. It's not. Like, yeah. A lot of kids or even adults who think of that, that's the look that they imagine. That's the look that they see when they close their eyes. Yeah. We yeah. see his Iron Man. We see Adi Granov's Iron Man on backpacks, lunchboxes, yeah. all sorts of products nowadays, yeah. you know? When, when the comic was first being serialized, I, I never imagined that yeah. it would become definitive for 15 years and going on yeah 16 now it's... and this is all just from six issues yeah <laughs> i mean yeah granted he worked on a couple of other things here and there but it's, this is a big part of it yeah you know even some of his covers some of the um covers he did for iron man even before this specific interior storyline when he was just doing some covers some of those poses you know that one famous pose of iron man landing and with yeah. one fist on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the like superhero another, landing. Yeah, the superhero yeah. landing. Like, that's a pose that you see in a lot of artwork, t-shirts. Uh, they even did a tribute to that, in the, I think, in Iron Man 2. Yeah. So, like, even in the movies and in the movie posters, they're, they're using his artwork as a basis yeah. for, for their storyboarding almost. Exactly, exactly. And, and they're just, at least, at the very least, their general design and outlook. So he's got a major influence... For sure. Like, you can't deny how important his artwork is. Not at all. So how does extremists withstand the test of time, Albert? Um, I think it does so quite well, honestly. It's something that I pick up every couple of years, and I'll read it again. And I think, I think there's a certain type of reader who would look at it and say, oh, he has a flip phone. And <laughs> that takes him out of it. And I I don't really have anything for that person. <laughs> I'd just be like, if you can't get past the idea of a man with a armored suit and the technology of tomorrow still using a flip phone, then uh, maybe this isn't for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but just in terms of the characterizations and in terms of um, the science fiction of it, it's... It's still so believable, uh, the way that Warren Ellis writes about it, that I can, again, I can pick this up every couple of years and just feel like it's still something that makes sense. You yeah. Know? It's still relevant. It still makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and even without all that, just the action aspect of it it's just a fun read you know it's so a highly entertaining comic highly en- exact yeah you know i mean for all the praise that we put on it about everything else and all the depth and um you know significance that we place on it at the end of the day it's just entertaining as heck yeah you know really and, fun to read yeah sometimes i just pull it off my shelf and flip it flip through it just to look at the pictures yeah like i i probably do that um, a couple times a year, you know, like every couple months, I'll I'll just pull it off my shelf, or 
I'll flip through the issues that I have. Like I have, I have it in hardcover, and I have the single issues yeah. <laughs> just because I like it that much. Yeah, and it, it's just fun to to look at. Like the artwork is magnificent, the fight scenes and the choreography for those are really well done. And I think what makes this withstand the test of time for me is not only uh, the story, but I think being able to examine it for the craft of it because mm-hmm. it, it's a really well told story like there's there are scenes where yeah the the dialogue and the artwork just match up so perfectly yeah and you can just i like just seeing the pacing of it like how the story is structured uh there's issue five of the series where iron man after getting his beating from malin ends up taking extremists and he spends that issue um basically being rebuilt from the inside out by the extremist serum. And while he's getting rebuilt, he's just kind of in this cocoon thing. Yeah. Then you see uh, a flashback of his origin. And to to kind of drop that origin, that updated origin, into um, issue five of the series, that's like the best way to have an origin story, I think. Yeah. Like, uh, even... Even if I were to see a movie of a character that they haven't introduced to the MCU at some point in the future, I would want it to just tell me a story and then maybe give, if you have to give me the origin, give me the origin five-sixths of the way through the movie, you know? Like, just kind of drop it in there, do it in a way that is unobtrusive, and just gives me enough so I understand where this character came from. It doesn't have to be an entire movie or an entire story centered around strictly the origin. And I think traditionally speaking, the way that a lot of people do it is they put it right up front just to get it out of the way. But yeah, yeah, that by itself is still kind of just this reminder. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. There's something skillful and daring about the way that they decided to structure their story even the ending is a little bit downbeat. Yeah. It it ends with because um, throughout the whole, whole story there I, I just reread it last night but throughout the whole story um one of the recurring themes is Tony Stark uh being able to escape his past or basically the imagery that they go back to is can he look himself in the mirror? Yeah. And and like there's a couple scenes early on in the book where he kind of looks at himself in the mirror when he's about to shave and he's like, I don't like looking at you. Yeah. Um, and then there's that scene with the documentarian who's reminding him of his past. Yeah. So there's just this constant idea or recurring motif of Tony Stark being haunted by being it. haunted by the past. Yeah. And and therefore that makes it hard for him to accept himself as today. <laughs> yeah, as he is today. Yeah. And then at, at the end of the story we, we learn that the reason why extremists, why that serum got stolen by the terrorists was because Maya Hansen she and her co um, they allowed it to be stolen yeah. because they were about to lose their funding for the project. And her goal was to create this thing that had military applications and then basically do what Tony Stark did, start use that money, start her own company. And then I, she says at one point in the story, give me four years and unlimited money and I can cure cancer. And then, and then another character asked Tony Stark, what would you do in four years? And he thinks about it and he kind of looks down at his feet and he's like, 
build a better Iron Man suit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> kind of... It's hollow. Yeah, like, it's kind of showing you, like, see, this is... It almost makes you see, oh, yeah, this is how you should be, you know? Like, this this woman is is doing it right, where she, she has aspirations to, to literally improve the world as opposed to just creating an armored bodyguard or yeah. whatever you want to call Iron Man. But it's revealed that she was losing funding for the project, so she wanted to... She was put it out on the to market. Put it at risk. Put, it, put people at risk. Put, put people at risk so that the military could see how powerful it truly was, and then, uh, you know, buy it, pay From her them. for it. Yeah. So you know she would get get to achieve her dreams. And Iron Man learns that she allowed it to happen, tells the authorities, and she gets arrested. And as she's getting taken away by the military police, she looks at Iron Man and, and says to him. You're no better than me. We're not different. I'm, I'm just doing the same thing that you did. And, and you can tell her that she's just furious. Yeah. And then Iron Man doesn't have a response initially. He, again, just looks at his feet and thinks about his answer. And then the final page of the entire story, one big splash page where Iron Man looks up in his armor. It's just gleaming, you know, and, and he just says responding to her accusation that she's no better that he's no better than her and he says but i'm trying to be yeah and i'm going to be able to look at myself in the mirror tomorrow yeah and that's just how it ends yeah it's it's a really interesting understated ending and and stuff like that fascinates me because it's not just that the story is entertaining and that's what makes it withstand the test of time but it's because these storytelling elements and the, the choices that they made uh the craft of it all it's something that I want to examine constantly and study. Yeah. Makes me want to figure out why does this work? Why does why is this so effective? Why is why is why is it when when Warren Ellis and Adi Granov try something different, it's it hits you with so much power. But yeah. everybody else who writes an Iron Man story or any superhero comic, practically everybody else, it's always like the same formulas repeated over and over. Like the same sort of structures and stanzas that you see repeatedly yeah but when you see something that's so different it just makes you want to keep on going back to it to figure out why can't all superhero <laughs> comics be like this yeah. like, why can't yeah. they all be this good yeah and that isn't to say that there haven't been other good um iron man writers but it's just there is something that you know excels this or puts yeah. this above above those you know there's a reason for it to mm -hmm. be in our top five yeah yeah just the way that this comic is crafted makes yeah. it worth going back to over and over and I, I think it's a comic that we'll still be going back to 10 years down the line you know 15 years down the line yeah. 20 years even even if somebody else comes along and yeah. updates iron man's uh, origin you know maybe He's an arms dealer in whatever the most recent war is yeah. uh, in the future. You know, this is still going to stand the test of time because it, it's not about the the trappings or the setting of the story or the time period. It, yeah, it's, it's about, the human drama. Yeah, it's the human drama. It, it's about Tony Stark as a character. And if you believe that these fictional characters will outlive us all, this is something that is always going to be true to the essence of the character. And that's what's that's what makes it timeless because regardless of when you read it, this will always be true to Tony Stark. Yeah. It's it's 
It's it not is. about the technology. It's not about the setting. It's not about any of the extraneous stuff. It, it's a story that's truly about Tony Stark and what makes him a hero. Very good. Very good. Do you have any other uh, closing thoughts? No, I think I thought that was well said, and uh, you you summed it up perfectly. So, well done. Thank you, man. Yeah. Appreciate that. Hmm. Um, yeah, I never really know how to end these. Well, thank you for listening, our fair friends, and uh, you know, be sure to follow us on Instagram. Uh, yeah, we'll try know. to post up some pictures of the yeah of the scenes that we described or mentioned in this episode yep and uh you know you can go to itunes to listen to us or you can go to uh soundcloud if you don't have either of those or if you don't have that so thank you for your time thanks for listening can i get a shanka donka shanka donka (laughs) 